Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. We're recording from our homes in Southern Ontario, Canada. I'm recording from Treaty 3, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people, and part of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. And I'm currently in Toronto, which is Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. We're releasing this episode as part of Mental Health and Wellbeing Week at Toronto Metropolitan University. And today we're speaking with two educators who are thinking deeply about what it means to foster student well-being in their teaching and in the kind of learning that takes place in their disciplines. Crystal Nunes is an assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology at TMU, whose research is focused on pedagogy and the sciences. She is also a learning and teaching grant holder who studies how students develop resilience and bounce back from failure. Dave Colangelo is an assistant professor of digital creation and communication in the School of Professional Communication at Toronto Met. A past learning and teaching grant holder, Dave's work focuses on creativity and pedagogy, especially outside of the creative disciplines. His research looks at assessment strategies and mental health. Welcome, Crystal and David. Thanks so much for having us. So Crystal and Dave, you both come to the classroom with really different strategies for supporting students to learn in new ways, and perhaps in ways that traditionally haven't been part of their disciplines or your disciplines. So how did you land in this spot? Uh, Crystal, let's start with you. What motivates your work and how did you get here? My research background and my PhD work is actually in the field of ecology. And so I've been in the sciences for many years. And after completing my degree, I, through that experience, I found that I really loved teaching and I dove into that work for many years working as a lecturer. And then leaning more into the research behind teaching and learning. I began a postdoctoral researcher position where I joined an existing project that was focused on the role of failure in learning. And that really sparked my interest in student resilience and the role that learning from failure plays in all disciplines and especially its importance in the sciences as well. And so part of what you're researching and what you're teaching is about changing student perceptions about failure. Can you say a little bit more about how that works? Absolutely. So in some previous work that I've done, we spoke to students of their existing perceptions of failure. And not surprisingly, it generally carries a negative stigma. And there's also a really strong fear of failure that a lot of students hold. A bit of a summary of what we found in that research is that the two main sources of that fear of failure, number one, came from the societal stigma associated with failing, but number two motivator for students were parents or guardians that were really driving that fear of failure. And when we asked students for suggestions of how we can better support them, both in the classroom and even outside of the university context, by far, the number one suggestion that we received was just to talk about it, to incorporate conversations about failure in the classroom, creating space for that sort of dialogue. And so that's what I'm doing here now at TMU. We're going to come back to this and, and dig into it a little deeper, but I want to just transition briefly over to uh, to Dave and, and get the other half of this picture. So Dave, in your case, you're looking at creativity. What's the connection for you between creativity and, and well-being? Well, I think for me, it also comes from 
my experience teaching and and I've had quite a lot of experience teaching before these last two years that I've been a professor at TMU. I started as a sessional instructor about 10 years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago at OCAD, um, and I've held two faculty positions before coming to TMU, one at Portland State University in the School of Film and another in the School of Design at George Brown College, and currently in the School of Professional Communication. I'm teaching a mixture of courses. Some courses can be more theory focused and lend themselves or at least ostensibly lend themselves towards essays, exams, quizzes, midterms, et cetera, and others that point towards more creative outputs. And throughout this whole time, I've just had this sense and and also you know seen it borne out in in the outcomes of students and and the classes is that when we're focused on more creative projects and outcomes say creating images sounds video etc there's a different dimension of self discovery and other discovery that i think is happening in the classes and for me that's kind of an overarching learning objective that that's kind of the the whole reason for coming to university for pursuing education is that self and other discovery and i just have found that it's been more palpable in those creative focused assessments so the next step is how can we examine that and how might we argue for that for courses for programs in which that might not seem like the obvious choice for for assessment yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking you emphasize self-discovery there. And Crystal, when you hear Dave talking about self-discovery, I wonder, you know, as you're thinking about resilience and about failure, and in particular in something like science, uh, is self-discovery a part of this process that you're thinking of in, in your pedagogy as well? Yeah, what I often think of is how we can best foster our students to be independent future scientists. And Dave, when you were speaking of assessments and creative assessments, That is what I try to incorporate in my work as well. Even though we are in the sciences and we don't, might not often utilize that adjective, there's so much creativity that goes into the sciences. For example, I think one area where there's been a shortcoming in undergraduate science training is with our labs, where we often give students a cookie cutter, almost a recipe-like lab to follow. They go through step-by-step to a guaranteed outcome. These cookie cutter labs can be valuable in teaching them skills or techniques for the lab space, but it's a very incomplete image of how science works, which is much more messy and requires a lot more problem solving. And so I often like to think of ways where we can have students you know, formulate their own hypotheses and their own questions and have that ability for creativity and self-discovery along the way. I'm thinking back to what you said earlier about one of your major findings, which was the importance of talking about these things, talking about failure. And I suppose, Dave, you must also have to talk to students about creativity. So I want to ask you both, how do you go about engaging students in the conversations about the things that you're espousing? That's a really good question, Chelsea. I think being able to define creativity as something that isn't the express domain of the creative school and, you know, the image arts department and film and photography and graphic design and, you know, the the areas that we might associate with that word and breaking it down into what 
creativity is and what it can do and why it may be worth that student turning their explanation of how an mRNA vaccine works into a TikTok instead of just writing out an essay answer or, you know, a, a formula. For this, I really rely on one of our colleagues at TMU, David Gauntlet, who's written a lot about creativity. And he's got a book called Making is Connecting. And he breaks it down into three strong points. The first is that making is connecting because you have to connect things together, whether it's materials or ideas or both to, to try to create something new. That doesn't have to be, you know, a film or a video. That could be an explanation about a scientific concept. The second is that there's usually some kind of social dimension that's involved in that process that connects us with other people. Whether that it's a collaborative project or whether it's using somebody else's resources, often when you're doing something creative, you're going to have to step outside of yourself. And the third step is probably the most important part. And I think as educators, we play a big role in this third part, and it's in the sharing of that thing. And so that's one of the things that I realized with these kind of creative outputs, these creative assessments, is that you're probably not going to want to share your essay or your final exam with anyone. It's really meant for one person, your instructor. It sets up a specific kind of relationship. But if you're making a short video, a podcast, a TikTok about whatever it is that you're studying, it makes a lot of sense to post that on a collaborative space like Microsoft Teams or Slack or, you know, your proprietary software that the school uses to, to share information with your class. So in that process, you're increasing this engagement with connection and with social and physical environments, which again is this kind of process of self and other discovery of discovering sort of the spaces that we're in and the role that we occupy in them. For me, that is all sort of foundational to a more social and distributed model of mental health. So that sort of brings it back to that aspect in the sense that as instructors, we're really in charge of creating the conditions for those things, for setting those guidelines up, for creating those message boards, for, for encouraging students to engage in and through those. So it's not just the assessment, but it's the framing of the assessment and the values that we ascribe to that type of work. And Crystal, how does talking about failure fit into your pedagogy? So as I briefly mentioned, the role of failure is really important in the sciences and the benefits that come along with learning from failure. There's lots of evidence out there to support that in that it helps to improve study habits, retain information. You're actually more likely to remember a concept later on. So there's a lot of benefits in experiencing that failure in developing as a student and as a future scientist as well for the days when inevitably an experiment goes terribly wrong or you get some sort of unexpected result. So incorporating that in the classroom and trying to create assessments that allow for that room for failure to occur and mistakes to happen and then for students to be able to improve, I think is a really important and, and valuable aspect to incorporate. That's so terrific. You know, Dave, I hear you talking about connection and collaboration and sharing and how, you know, the creative assessments that that allow students to do that are maybe benefiting them in ways that are directly related to well-being. I wonder, Crystal, and when you're thinking about assessments and helping students to think about failure, are some of those principles the same for you, the connection, the collaboration? Like, is that, I mean, I assume that's a big part of the sciences as well? 
Yeah. So one thing I like to incorporate in terms of building connection is having connection to real world problems, um, which can help students become more engaged and interested in what they're working on. To actually go back to what Dave was saying, I thought that was so interesting in how you framed the, the benefits of allowing students to use different forms for assessments. You know, one of the recommendations of the universal design for learning, giving students varying options of what media they utilize for their assessment or their final product to help them stay engaged. But I've never heard the framing before of it's much easier or more desirable to share a video than to share an essay. And I think that's a really great way to think about it as well. Thanks, Crystal. Yeah, I think hearing more about your work around failure helps me extend some of these thoughts and theories about creativity in the sense that I think what's happening as well in these processes is the creation of an environment that can foster mutuality, trust, shared understanding, recognition that we sort of need each other in this process of discovery. And that can also help with creating conditions for for failure to be less traumatic, right? And to be an opportunity to to grow instead of something that would sort of stunt your ability to move forward through a learning process. So yeah, I'm, I'm it's it's really interesting to hear your thoughts and your research and and I'm starting to think about some some connections between the two. It's really interesting to listen to your back and forth here because of the overlap that you're pointing out, Dave. But I'm wondering, like, what do students think of all this? We're talking about failure, creativity, self-discovery. And what if you're a student and you've enrolled in university and you're thinking, like, I'm just I'm going to learn chemistry and, and, and get out of here. Or this is my class for a particular subject and I'm not expecting to have to go through these processes of, of self-discovery and, and creativity and, and even Failure. So how do students respond to some of these big ideas when you try to bring them into the classroom, especially if they're not anticipating this? Notions of something like failure um, don't tend to make it into those recruitment materials. So students show up and how do they react? That is a fantastic question. So just as a bit of context, with my incorporation of discussions of failure in the classroom, I've done that this past term in two ways. The first were very brief discussions, mostly led by myself, where I did a segment called Friday Failures with Dr. Nunes, and I would just share one of my personal failures with my students, academic, non-academic, quite a variety. But there were also dedicated lectures to these discussions, entire class scheduled into the syllabus to talk about failure in learning, student experiences with it, um, mental health, procrastination, and the pressures that students feel. And I remember when I was to do this for the first time, I was feeling quite self-conscious as an instructor. I was concerned as to how it would go, how it would be received, because it was nothing related to, say, the ecology concepts that we had covered. It was something very different. The level of engagement was fantastic. I was so pleased to see that. I didn't even have the opportunity to get to everyone who wanted to participate or share comments because there's a lot of conversation that occurred. And I received a lot of positive feedback at the end of class, you know, students coming up to me and saying how they really appreciated having these types of conversations. 
And then also later survey data that we collected as well, it was overwhelmingly positive. I will say there may be two responses of a class of 200 where there was a comment of, I would have rather spent this time learning about X science concept, but overall it was extremely well received, which was great to, great to see. Yeah, I also think that's a really good question, Chelsea. And in a lot of ways, that's the question we want to pick up on with this project. So our learning and teaching grant, really what it allowed us to do was to do some research on the impact of assessment types on mental health and look at the potential of creativity to support mutual recovery in mental health. The next big step for us is to take what we created, which was an open educational resource that summarizes all of our research, have that as part of a workshop where we would bring instructors who are interested in applying some of this theory, and then for them to go out and rework an assessment and come back to us and and give us that kind of feedback to find out, okay, how are the students reacting to it and verify this, these hunches really that we have about connecting mental health to creativity to the kinds of assessments that we make. The other part of that that came to mind was uh, you both might be able to give me the correct name on this, but this idea of not grading contracts, but giving students kind of the option to decide what sort of level of engagement they want to have with the material and then evaluating them based on that. Yeah, there's well, there's like specifications grading. There's a whole specifications bunch of grading. Yeah. yeah. You know, my instinct would be to think about how that could be incorporated as well. Getting back to universal design for learning and that students may not want to engage in that way or feel safe enough to do so at that time in their lives. So I think that's important to keep in mind as well is the flexibility there would be other sort of parameters to think about in rolling something like this out. But I really like what Crystal said, having that failure Friday. For me, a big part of this is modeling behavior or modeling, you know, an example of, of the work. So with all of the creative assessments that I assign, I'm always creating one myself and sharing it to begin with as a way of kind of kickstarting that process or asking previous students if it's okay to share their work and doing so, so that the students can see that somebody's already got the ball rolling or seeing the value maybe of of them just engaging with somebody else's work and wanting to do that for their classmates. So I think modeling is a really important aspect. And that brings things back to what is our role as educators in supporting student mental health, right? That's a big part of our project. It was about saying, what can we do? That doesn't mean adding another 20 hours of work to our work week, which is already completely full, but how can we make adjustments within the framework of our positions to support student mental health? It's so interesting. You know, you're both talking a lot about assessment. I mean, in in a sense, this whole episode is thinking about the purpose of assessment. I'm reminded of a time A few years back, I was teaching an elective course, and I had students from all over the university. It was a sociology class in popular culture. So a creative assignment would have actually been a great assignment in a course like that. Uh, But I had an essay. And it was like, you know, you had to have a writing component. And I remember this computer science student coming up to me at the end of the class and handing me uh, his paper and saying, I'm so sorry. I just want you to know I love this class. Um, It was my favorite class, but I'm really sorry about this. And then he handed me the paper. And I remember thinking to myself, something is really wrong here, right? Like here's a student telling me he loves the class, but is apologizing for the assessment he's handing in. It made me think maybe I'm not thinking closely or, or well enough about 
what I'm asking students to do with the knowledge that they're getting. And really both of you are talking about that. On the one hand, he felt like a failure just handing in the paper. And on the other hand, maybe that was not aligned with the goals I was going for. As I think about what motivates students, um, during the pandemic, we switched a lot of assessments. And I know the Academic Integrity Office got a lot more suspicions of academic misconduct during that time. When you think about the kinds of ways, Crystal, that you frame failure and provide opportunities for students to be learning, and Dave, you know, this emphasis on creativity and getting the students engaged with their learning, can you make any kind of, um, you know, correlation at all uh, in terms of like the amount of uh, that academic misconduct you might see when you do these things? Maybe I'll start, Crystal, with you and then throw it to Dave. Yeah, so the role of assessment with failure, fear, failure, mental health, they're all linked. And it's something that I struggle with myself and think about a lot in my work. You know, it's one thing to tell students, there's many benefits to experiencing failure. There's much that you can learn. At the end of the day, they are working within an institution that uses grades as the primary measure of learning, and they are typically penalized for making mistakes. I think that's where careful consideration for our assessments comes into play. I've, you know, absolutely, as other instructors have, experienced academic misconduct within my courses. Um, A lot of it comes down to if there's a writing piece, say a lab report, for example, finding ones that are just lighting up with Turnitin, and they had been posted online to one of those many websites where students can pay to access uh, other students' copies or to maybe a student from a previous term. This is something that I've dealt with in trying to rectify, and I think designing assessments to support resilience will hopefully also mitigate issues with academic misconduct Maybe, hopefully, there's not too much out there um, in terms of the literature, and it's something that I'm just starting to explore now. But say, for example, um, what I'm thinking of implementing in my courses now is a scaffolded lab report. They're not just completing one, submitting, and done. It's, you know, the first stage is just come up with a topic. And then you're going to do the first section of the assessment. You'll get it back. You'll you'll get feedback from a TA. And then the next section, you'll revise, you resubmit so that there's A, opportunities for improvement. So perhaps they don't feel the stakes are so high and maybe have that panicked decision to lean towards academic misconduct. And then it's also something that they've been building on throughout the semester. So they've already had a topic picked out since the beginning of term, for instance, and are just building on it slowly but surely taking ownership of that topic. We'll see how, how well that supports both student mental health, fear of failure, providing that opportunity to revise and resubmit, and mitigating cases where students just at the end of term in a panic pull a document off the internet. Great example. That scaffolded process really, it's like a relationship you develop with the student. That's great. Dave, what about you? I think Crystal named so many important points there. Revise and resubmit, scaffolded, low stakes, no stakes, sort of entry points into any kind of topic, especially with these creative outputs. One of the modules in our educational resource looks at TikTok instead of exams. So allowing students to use whatever means that they're used to creating media in to create their assignments. So 
Underneath all of that, what leads to academic misconduct, Crystal had mentioned, you know, desperation, fear, disengagement. That's really, again, up to us to locate those pain points in the scope of a course. And how do we move those towards engagement, comfort, safety, joy in the process of going through these assessments? And yeah, all of those things Crystal said. And then, you know, I might plug creativity again and say that part of what that is designed to do is to allow students to tap into their own sort of personal interests and voice and to celebrate hopefully theirs and and others in the process. I think back to my undergraduate education and I actually started out in engineering and it was very cut and dry and it was not scaffolded and it was like pretty intense and there weren't any creative assessments. (laughs) And the only sort of rush or bit of joy that I got was, you know, if I did really well on that test and, you know, there'd be an A plus or, you know, 19 out of 20 or something like that. But there's so many other ways that we can get joy out of the learning experience. And if there had been an opportunity to share something with somebody else to create and celebrate the achievements of of my classmates, I think it would be a totally different environment. And those little hits of dopamine would actually relocate to that social space instead of that, I don't know, empirical, very small and blunt instrument of of, uh, assessment. Dave, something you said earlier really jumped out at me, and it's still on my mind as we kind of wrap up our conversation. And it's that when you ask your students to do creative assessments, you do them first um, and you model them. And this stood out to me because I also ask my students to do creative assessments or I offer it as an option. I get all sorts of stuff. I get quilts. I get students dancing. I get students beating. I, I get video games. I get lots of great stuff that I've never, ever done myself. As you were talking, I was thinking, oh, I would never maybe do those things because I might fail at them. And so (laughs) what I'm wondering, and from, from both of you, is what is your advice to teachers who are listening to this thinking, okay, these big conversations about failure, you know, they sound really interesting or creative interventions sound interesting, but Dave and Crystal have all this research backing them up, all this practice. What would be maybe one piece of advice to a teacher listener who is interested in engaging in some of these interventions and just sort of making a start in their own classroom? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that it can be overwhelming when a ton of options or suggestions are thrown your way. And so my suggestion to instructors, because teaching is already, you know, a lot of work, it can be overwhelming, is to just do a plus one. Pick one thing that you think you could reasonably implement. For example, what I had stated before, the Friday failure example, that's something really easy that you can take a couple minutes at the beginning of a lecture to incorporate those conversations. Or in terms of the full discussions about failure in your classroom, it might at first seem like quite a challenge of how could I possibly find space in my syllabus to dedicate an entire class to conversations about failure and mental health. But I promise it can be done with a bit of creativity and shifting around and really prioritizing learning objectives. And there's always some content that maybe doesn't have to be a priority and making that space for those conversations. 
getting started, I think Dave had mentioned the creation of open education resources. And that's one of the goals of my work right now with the uh, learning and teaching grant is to, at the end, produce open education resources of these guided discussions, PowerPoint slide decks, so that if another instructor is interested in hosting these conversations, reach out. I am happy to share materials, instructor notes, anything that can support them. And Dave, what do you say? I agree with Crystal. I think start small. You know, you don't have to rework your entire course. Try with just one small assessment, a small low stakes assessment. Provide options. So again, you don't have to, doesn't have to be all or nothing even within that one small assessment that you decide to rework. And yeah, just just ease yourself into it and get feedback about it and check in with yourself about it and see if it works for you as an instructor. And then the other thing that I would say is that this isn't just about student mental health. This is also about instructor mental health. I mean, tell me what you would rather grade, a stack of essays or listen to a, a playlist of you know wonderfully constructed podcasts from your students. I think there's a lot of possibilities there and there's a lot of incentive there, I think, for instructors to think about changing up some of the ways that they design assessments because um, we need a break too. And in the process, we also learn about ourselves and about others and create conditions for mutuality and trust between ourselves and our students. That's beautifully said, Dave. It's, it's funny though, because uh, you know you mentioned, would I rather mark a stack of essays or a podcast? I was talking to one instructor that decided they were going to do a podcast assignment, but they had like 200 students. <laughs> so uh, she was like, I, I, that was really hard. I had to listen to 200 podcasts. Uh, I can only imagine. So class size dependent. Is, is yes, definitely. <laughs> Listen, that was great. Really want to thank you both. Um, really enjoyed you ha having on the podcast and I really appreciate you joining us. This was terrific. Thank you so much for having us. And also a big thank you to instructional technologist, Sally Goldberg-Powell, who produces this show. We also want to thank the Toronto Metropolitan University Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast and Brock University Centre for Pedagogical Innovation for its support. 